walked right out of the machinery. Chapter 8 The snake is building a widget. Or, possibly, it's a doohickey. He's not sure. Okay, it's a resonance augmenter, which will enable the primary sensors of the cargo ship to scan on the correct frequencies to detect the radiation signature of an aquida drive. And the worst part is that he actually understands what that means. But if he admits that, then he'll never live it down. Doohickey. It involves a lot of crystals and wires, which the snakes laid out round him in neat rows on the floor of the tell-tack, along with something that turns out to be the gold equivalent of a soldering iron. Just like a regular soldering iron, but with more gold. He works quickly and precisely, no tinkering or messing around to see how things fit together, At intervals, he pauses, motionless, while he consults the circuit diagrams in his head, visualizing them as clearly as if he was holding a blueprint, then lets them slide away again. Photographic memory, or close enough for government work, handy trick. The council would hardly have sent him to map the shifting corridors and gravity fields of Baal's fortress if he had to keep his records on a piece of paper in his pocket. It's strange. Sitting back and letting the snake drive for this long feels like he's trying to hold still, not move or breathe too loudly. Not that he could move, But if the impulse to fidget gets too strong, the snake overreacts and pitches him back into control of the body. And right now, that just leads to burnt fingers, dislodged crystals, and a sense of ostentatious, strained patience. Neither of them wants to risk the odd truth they've got going. They agree on what needs to be done, and that's enough. For now. And he's not thinking beyond that. The long-term odds of survival aren't so hot anyway. They only have to avoid tearing each other apart for a while longer. It's not like he hasn't worked with assholes before. And at least the snake's a competent asshole. A ripple of irritation, like a niche he wants to slap at. Fine. Cut the commentary. No backseat driving. The weirdest part is still not being able to look around, not even being able to close his eyes or let them unfocus. He can't even look out of the window at the hyperspace light show. He only sees what the snake wants to look at, neat snapshots of the circuitry to match against the diagrams in his head. A small correction. Adjusting the alignment of a crystal rod. The sort of error he shouldn't make if he was not distracted. He tries to ignore what he's looking at. Like it's a TV in the corner of a room, volume muted, turned to an endless string of infomercials. 
retreat inside his head, into the tiny corner of it where he can pretend he's the only one there. Can't move, can't do anything. Nothing more than a point of awareness, a train of thought in his own mind. And half the time he's not even sure which thoughts are his. You could start wondering if you're real, if you even exist. I think, therefore, nada. Must be what it's like for the Gua'uld host once they stop fighting. Being eroded away, bit by bit, losing a piece of yourself each day. Flinch, like he's touched a raw spot. The snake's not his. As if the snake thinks he was referring to that. But he wasn't. It almost surprises him that he wasn't. But he knows what it means to the snake now to cross that line. Tested that one to destruction. Skippy's a lot of things, but he's no gold. The snake puts down the soldering iron, exactly parallel to one row of crystals, perpendicular to another and closes his eyes. Red-tinged blackness coming down like a shudder. He thinks about calm. If desired, they could take a break to allow the host control of the body, then complete the work later. Might as well get it finished now. The sooner it's done, the sooner they can get on with this. Agreement. The snake picks up his tools again, long, deft fingers, a craftsman, and he tries to bury the appreciation, spare himself the host's anger. Discretion is the better part of valor and all that crap, so he pretends not to notice. Not that he can lie to the snake any more than the snake can lie to him, but it's a way to skip the fight. He can let that one slide. He goes back to the corner of his mind and tries to let himself drift, daydream himself somewhere more interesting. It's a while before he notices the humming, notices that it's not just in his head. His own voice, so quiet, it's barely distorted at all absently echoing the tune in his mind. It breaks off as soon as he notices, the snake catching himself with the twinge of regret that the music will stop now. So beautiful. Then, there's only the background drone of the engines, the snick of crystals fitting into place, and the hiss of molten metal. Oh, hell. He picks it up again, lets the memory go on playing, and doesn't let himself think about it too much. He's not going to drive himself crazy with boredom just to spite the snake. A low, insinuating melody. It'd almost be jaunty if it wasn't for the serrated edge of the cello, scraping over bare nerves, breaking off and then returning, wheedling. Joker and assassin, baritone and bass circling each other, 
edging around the possibility of a deal. Glorious melodrama. And, of course, then it all goes to pieces and ends in death and tragedy, but that's opera for you. An old recording. Tito Gobi and, oh, who was it? Neri? But his imagination filters out the crackle and hiss. Two different kinds of darkness, smooth as polished wood. He has heard music on a hundred worlds, remembers it from thousands more. But not like this, refracted through the host's mind, the way he hears it. He lets the low F he can't reach in real life ring out in his mind, where he can hold it effortlessly. In his dreams, the violet streaks of hyperspace become the white paint strips down the road on the way to Minnesota, I-25 to the I-80. The drive's part of the ritual, a reminder that there is a world that isn't smeared across the galaxy between one heartbeat and the next, won't dissolve into light and beam away. Farms and cabins, fish that don't bite, and mosquitoes that do. It's a dull place compared to the daily space opera at the SGC, and he likes it that way. He turns up the opera on the stereo and taps his finger on the wheel. He checks the calibrations on the scanner again and waits for them to drop out of hyperspace. Part of him is still awake. Part of him always will be. He's never going to go back to Minnesota again. Even if he could, it wouldn't be the same place anymore with him in it, with what he is now. But that only makes him cling tighter to the smell of gasoline, a greasy truck stop breakfast, the dank fabric of a deck chair stored away all winter. He stays asleep until the last possible second, even after the glowing dot appears on the Teltax screen and the snake reaches into Minnesota to pull him out. It's the third system they've been to, skipping through hyperspace like a slung stone. Somehow he didn't expect that they'd hit pay dirt so fast. But it looks like he was right. The NID are still hanging ground the off-world bases. Not that the Asgard left them with anything worth salvaging, but it makes sense. Neighborhoods where they already know there's no Gua'uld influence and no nosy high-tech locals. Dumb as rocks if you're trying not to be tracked by someone from Earth, but he'd bet that was the last thing on their minds. The ship's already cloaked, so they mosey in for a closer look, skirting around to get a visual. And he's not even going to complain that the snake drives like a little old lady, always nursing the cargo ship's limits because, ding, 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 we have a winner. It's the Prometheus, all right. 
Not quite the same as the last time he saw it. Buried half a click under Nevada in a cocoon of gantries and docking clamps. There are more than a few blast marks on the sides, as if it's taken some heavy fire. And two vast, organic-looking cannons protrude from the ship's tower, like the mutant offspring of a rocket launcher and a squid. Ancient weapons. But it's the same damn ship. A quick check says they can't get a lock on the rings, so the docking bay's the only way in. And they're not going to get any more intel hanging around out here. The Teltax cloaks are the best the Tok'ra have. Nothing too good for those who are about to die. But nonetheless, he aims for the blind spot in the radar that Carter mentioned. The one that might still be there if the NID hadn't had time to fix it yet. Doesn't hurt to be careful. The Teltac slides in smoothly through the force fields, as close as he can get it to one side of the docking bay, and lands with only the slightest bump as Prometheus's pseudo-gravity fields lock onto it. The biggest risk is that the NID have security cameras active, but even if the systems were wired up when the ship was hijacked, they shouldn't have the manpower to watch them all the time. For NID, plus Simmons and the Gua'uld, or minus, because if they have half a brain, they'll have someone with a gun to the Gua'uld's head at all times. Maybe they picked up more crew, but he doubts they'd be willing to work with off-worlders. Not their style. They'll be spread thin. The Nakwada enhanced explosive device, call it what it is, it's a nuke, is a matte gray sphere about the size of a bowling ball. Doesn't look like much, but the snake's memories say that it should be enough to take out a fair-sized city and irradiate the suburbs to boot. He could set it here, but most of the kinetic energy would be channeled out of the bay and into space, away from the body of the ship. Better to get it as close to the hyperdrive as he can. Destabilize that and forget cities. The explosion will be enough to destroy a planet. Or two. There's a tightness in his chest. Par for the course, pre-mission jitters. He tucks the zat into his belt and lets the snake run a last check on the bomb. Something's niggling at him. The itchy sense that this is too easy, that something's off. But then, easy here includes good odds that they won't make it. Best case scenario, plant the bomb in the drive room and have whole minutes to get out and get the teltac clear before the blast. Worst case, get intercepted and have to detonate on the spot. Funny not to have to argue about that, to find that they're both taking plan B for granted. It could be that his standards are skewed lately. A nuke in a suicide mission. It's just like old times. The snake's on high alert the edge of anxiety that he's learned to recognize cranked up into a continuous 
thrumming tension that could almost be mistaken for calm, like a vibration accelerated until it looks motionless to the naked eye. As if he's only unafraid in the middle of a mission when there's no room for anything except doing. Risk of a shared death known and close and measurable. Shared acceptance of the risk. It's kind of a weird bonus. He wouldn't want to take anyone he likes along with him on this kind of job. Anyone he might reflexively try to protect and risk screwing the mission. Anyone he wouldn't want to drag down into the old Black Ops muck with him. Which makes the snake ideal company. He pops the door on the teltac, the one next to the wall, and steps out, staying covered for as long as he can. Then he edges along the wall, gauging the angles and the sight lines. The far corner should be a blind spot for any cameras. The air in the docking bay smells stale and thin, recycled too many times and not pressurized enough. He's nearly reached the doors at the back of the bay when he hears the bang. For a split second, he thinks it's an explosion before the gale seizes him, trying to pull him off his feet, dragging him backwards along the slick metal floor. He knows what it is even before he turns his head and sees blackness where the faint shimmer of force fields should be, nothing holding the atmosphere inside the bay anymore, nothing between him and vacuum. Shit, 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 stupid, stupid, stupid. They saw him coming. Somehow. Cameras, sensors, doesn't matter. And the fuckers waited until he was out of the ship to kill the force fields. Bye-bye air and hello tornado sucking Dorothy Gale out into space. Explosive decompression, like a cockpit shattering and training makes him exhale, blowing out the air in his lungs before they rupture. He's got maybe nine, ten seconds max before he blacks out. Mission control, we have obtained FUBAR. The snake hurls them sideways into the wall of the bay, body scraping along it as they're dragged out. There's a pop and a stab of pain in his ears, and after that, everything's muffled. Debris flies by, leftover scrap and discarded tools turning into a metal hailstorm, battering at him. He flattens himself against the wall and collides with a pipe, manages to get an arm hooked around it and hang on. Not a hope in hell of making it back to the teltac, only a few seconds left. No argument, no hesitation, acceptance. He frees a hand and fumbles for the control pad on the nuke, feeling muscles tear and joints strain in the arm round the pipe, the body being wrenched past human limits. Fingers slip on the slick metal, and everything's graying round the edges, hypoxic, starting to fuzz out, but he gets the first switch down, active, then slams the countdown down as far as it'll go, and then it's gone, pulled out of his hand, falling towards the mouth of the bay, and the blackness swims up so fast. The host, slipping away, can't reach him anymore, alone, a distant hum in his ears, ringing the last tricks of a dying brain, or blackout.
bright white light paints blotches and squiggles on the inside of his eyelids. It dims as he wakes, and his eyes open to see nothing except that smooth, diffuse light so familiar. The inside of the... No, 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 fuck no, anything but that. He lashes out, fist and a knee slamming hard into the invulnerable sides of the box before pain jars him back into himself. Like waking up in a coffin buried alive, except you know that when they take the lid off, it's only going to get worse. Inside, the sarcophagus. The human brain, under sufficient stress. Maybe Lord Yu never attacked, and the power generators never failed, and here we are still, ready for another go-round-the-carousel. And the light is dimming, which means that any time now, the lid will swing open with a noise like grinding stone. He flings a forearm up to cover his eyes and knows that it won't make the least bit of difference. No, just a little longer. Let me sleep. Don't want to go to school today. But the light that filters through his eyelids is cold blue, not art deco amber and bronze. And the hand that grabs his shoulder doesn't have a fancy Jaffa S&M cuff on it. He looks up along the arm to see a flash of short-sleeved shirt, splotches of yellow and black on white. Camo for an accident in a paint factory. Just get him out of there, a woman's voice, sounding harried and faintly bored, speaking English. N.I.D. They haul on him, heave ho, jack out of the box, and he's barely got his feet on the ground before they yank him off balance again and wrench his arms round to handcuff his wrist. In front of him, the morons. Across the room, the bored woman is holding a Beretta trained on him. Looks like an M9, standard issue. They must have taken the weapons from the SFs. The Sark always leaves him feeling... wrong. Like it hasn't quite fitted him back into his body. The outlines overlap, but don't match right. Parts of him still somewhere else, and parts empty and numb. He's surprised that he can touch anything, that he feels the fingers gripping his arms. And when he looks down at his hands, for a moment, he expects them to be someone else's. Fucking existential hangover. But inside his head, everything's crisp and hard-edged, shared certainty. All of these people need to die, preferably as soon as possible. Scan. Assess. Inventory. No zat on his belt, of course. They're in a small windowless metal room. Looks like they're still on the Prometheus, judging by the decor, but he has no idea where. Could be one of a hundred small windowless metal rooms. What does he have that he can use? Information. An ID. If they haven't been in contact with agents on Earth in the last month or so, 
If they haven't got ears in the SGC, then they don't know about the snake. Something they don't know. A blind spot. A card up his sleeve. Even if it'll only last until their pet Gwauld smells an aquita in his blood. He'll take whatever advantages he can get. If the snake can lie low, if they can pass for human. Exene on the eyeway, Ashflay. In return, he gets his own memories thrown at him. A frosty night in Germany, on the wrong side of the wall. His breath missed the plastic surface of the radio, lips nearly brushing it. Requesting radio silence. Message received. Wait, was that a joke? Hell of a time for the snake to discover a sense of humor, even if he missed the part where you're supposed to be funny. The two NID goons pull him away from the sarcophagus. I was trying to quit, he protests and is ignored. And down the corridor, going somewhere. You walk, because if you don't, they drag you. And it's a waste of energy that you're going to need soon. It's cold, as if they haven't got the environmentals running on full power. Air like a meat locker. The lights are dim and blue. Emergency lighting. The color they put in public toilets to stop junkies from finding Gavain. He wonders if he was dead when they scooped him up and dropped him in the sark. Or only half dead. Not that it should matter. He lost count a long time ago. But it does. An unknown number N plus one. Another notch on the metaphysical bedpost of You've just been fucked. They march him down another long corridor, hustling him fast enough that he'd be pulled off his feet if he was still weak and shaky from the sark, as weak as they think he is. Standard psych tactics. He stumbles a little to oblige them, to keep them from noticing that he's recovered faster than an unblended human would, and the snake twists his head round, trying to get a glimpse of the number plate on one of the doors before they haul him forwards. Get their bearings, get data he might be able to correlate with anything they pick up later. You can't escape if you don't know which way is out. No, you're not getting it. I told you, the fucking shields were up in time. Behind him, the woman's picked up a conversation. He can only hear one side. She must have the Beretta in one hand and a walkie-talkie in the other, like someone chatting on a mobile phone. Nuke must have gone off outside the ship. This is what you get for having a fucking safety delay built into your fucking countdown. It's the EMP that took the hyperdrive offline. No, Adrian needs to take a look at it. Adrian, the gold in Adrian Conrad's body. Jeez, 
Adrian, as if he's an old chum of hers. And he wonders what the fuck the NID think they're playing at. Nobody else can. Until then, we're dead in the water. Around him, the ship stretches out, vast and cold and empty. Still unfinished, they pass dark spots where the lighting's dead. Bundles of wires spilling out of wall panels like a shredded nervous system. We're bringing him up now. The ship was months away from its completion date when the NID hijacked it, and it looks like they only did the bare minimum of patching necessary to keep it flying. Half the ship probably isn't even habitable, but they don't need it to be. No point wasting power on life support for a crew of hundreds when you've only got five or six. A handful of people rattling around in a huge, empty ship with insanely powerful weapons tacked onto it, tooling around the galaxy, tilting at windmills. Yeah, well, screw you too. Joan's out. The accent makes her aggression sound weirdly coy and girlish. A cracked southern bell. Or maybe he's just old-fashioned, and Carter would kick his ass in combat boots for having the thought. They must have killed the hostages first thing, pretty much as soon as they got off the ground. Too much of a risk otherwise. Not enough manpower to handle the risk of a breakout. Shot them, or spaced them, most likely. The TV crew, the SFs. He wonders if they dragged Jonas Quinn down this corridor to his death, if he froze with fear or fought them any way he could, because he was afraid. Because more than anything else, he was terrified of being a coward again. Stupid waste. He was smart. The SGC could have used him. They reach an open door, and the NID goons shove him in, hard enough that he stumbles into the heavy metal table, and it's only half a fake-out. It skids an inch or two as he collides with it, not yet bolted to the floor. A small square room with no other exits. A cell. A single chair. Is this for me? he inquires, playing demure surprise. The woman, Jones, raises the Beretta and keeps it trained on him until he shrugs and sits down. Kids these days. No manners. The guy in the ugly yellow and black shirt clicks the door shut. We need to have a conversation, Colonel O'Neill. A little cozy chit-chat, he has no doubt. Two L's, and I'll take my coffee black, no sugar. Need my cereal number two, or you got that already? The days of the system lords are numbered. Our death only feeds the fire that burns strong in the Tok'ra. Memorized speech, burned so deep he could repeat it 
half-conscious. Frankly, he thinks it could use a little work. It lacks pizzazz. At least a name, rank, and serial number is pithy. But the party won't get started before Simmons shows up. This is just the warm-up. Where are the rest of SG-1? The man asks. Yeah, they don't know shit. He would feel relief. Does, probably, in a part of his mind far away from this place. You should know. You killed one of them, he says, conversationally. The second ugly-shirted goon snorts. It's an ugly sound. The little alien, he weren't that attached. As if that mattered. They killed one of his team. Where are Major Carter and Teal'c? Oh, I haven't seen them for a while. But they're around. He tries a suitably vague gesture in the direction of around, but the cuffs pull him up short and he has to compensate by raising his eyebrows as high as they'll go. I should imagine. Let them think half his team's somewhere nearby. Keep them looking for backup he doesn't have, and it'll split their attention nicely. Disinformation. The snake knows this game, too, easing through memories of past interrogation. Pretend to break and feed them as much false intel as you can. Make anything they can get from you worse than useless. Fight them all the way down. But they're a long way from broken yet. Where did you get the cargo ship from? Footsteps outside the door, clanking on the metal floor. He hears it before they do. The snake's got good ears. Thought I'd trade in my truck for something with a little less mileage. It's a sweet ride. Beats the hell out of sitting in traffic. But the man who comes in isn't Simmons. He's a short, scruffy guy with an embarrassing soul patch and a gold shock stick in one hand. Oh, here we go. That and the Sark. But he's not thinking about the Sark. He's not thinking about the Sark because then he might want it. And a buck fifty gets you their rating for technology. Or they have a gold source. In his head, a pattern's starting to form slowly coming into focus, but he can't see what it is yet. Leave the snake to go on thinking about it. This guy must be the last of the NID. There's an exchange of glances, and one of the other men leaves, stretched thin. Where's Simmons? He couldn't stop by to see an old friend. He's sitting up too straight, he realizes, and makes himself slouch, twists his spine round, and hooks an elbow over the back of the chair. Fucking Tok'ra manners. 
he should be able to do a better impression of Jack O'Neill when he needs to. Not like he hasn't spent a lifetime practicing. So familiar, it aches. Holding back and letting his other self play the role they need to wear, their shared life in his hands. Simmons is dead. There was an accident, Jones says. The man with the soul patch and a shock stick throws her a glance. Remember who's supposed to be asking the questions? And she backs off, looking resentful. So, soul patch is in charge, or thinks he is. Dollars to donuts, the woman is smarter than he is, but he doesn't think she's lying. Not consciously, anyway. And... Simmons is dead. Accident, huh? That's a shame. Didn't, by any chance, occur near Adrian, did it? He sings out. That gets a tiny flicker of unease. Bingo. They're letting the Gua'uld have too much scope, and it's already come back to bite them in the ass. And they're trying not to know it, because then they'll have to do something about it, and they're not sure they can. Nice of you to be so concerned, Colonel, the man sneers. Freaking amateurs. Why do they always have to go for overacting? It's as bad as the gold. But you leave that up to us. We can control the Gua'uld. He wants to stay alive. It's in his interest to help us. Now, as for you... Soulpatch crosses the room fast, lifting the shock stick, but uses it as a club. It lands across his shoulder and arm as he automatically tries to block it, jarring through his bones into his teeth nearly enough to knock him off the chair onto the floor. Just a little introduction. He clutches the edge of the table and feels the snake still fighting down the instinct to lift cuffed hands and catch the stick and wrench it out of the man's hands, suppressing the bright flare of fury before it reaches his eyes. Instead, he mimes pain. He can feel it, too, before the nerve blocks and neurochemical tweaks shut it out. Oh yeah, that'll leave a bruise. Except it won't, of course. Never trust a snake, he says through clenched teeth, a smile like a shark's. That's what I always say. They have no fucking clue what they're dealing with. We're doing what needs to be done to protect Earth. Just because the SGC is too squeamish to get its hands dirty. Yeah, well, in case you haven't heard, the system lords aren't too happy with your little crusade. They bombed the Alpha site into rubble. They're threatening to declare the Protected Planets Treaty void. You think you're protecting Earth? No, they hadn't heard. But Jones recovers impressively fast. 
Oh, please. The treaty is a joke. We're a threat to them, and they're going to attack Earth as soon as they think they can get away with it. The X-303 is exactly the sort of technology that's forbidden. We're just hitting them first. But not Anubis. And there it is, cold and clear in the snake's mind. Anubis is not interested in territory. He operates through cat's paws. They're all the same, Jones says, all the fire of a true believer. Joan of Arc of the National Intelligence Division, reciting words that someone else has fed her. If we attack Anubis first, the other system lords will move into the power vacuum. We don't have the strength to tackle him yet, but we will. Change angles. Adrian, help you set up the box? All those shiny, gold toys? After he killed Simmons, no doubt. A little too late to resurrect him. Oops, what a pity. We have some contacts, Soulpatch says defensively, not quite following. He hasn't got it yet. Yeah, I'll bet you do. It's beautiful in a sick fuck kind of way. He wonders how long it took Adrian Conrad to sell them out, make contact with the most powerful gold he could find, the one who could help him make ancient technology work. He wants to stay alive. Let the NID provoke an all-out war between the system lords and Earth. Let them destroy each other, and whoever wins, Anubis comes out on top. No need to wonder anymore who leaked the address of the Alpha site. The NID must have had it. And from there... You know you're being played, right? This time, he gets the business end of the shock stick. Apparently, they're all done with the witty repartee. He clenches his teeth and won't give them the satisfaction of hearing him scream. It hurts like fuck, but only for a second before the snake can block it. He can keep doing that for a while yet. Unless they have a harosh cache. That fun little gadget for searing lesions directly into a symbiote's nervous system. Favorite gold punishment for their own. But these guys aren't the all, and they don't have any of his toys. Nice try, already been tortured by a better class of bastard than you guys. But they have a Sark. God, he hopes they don't have any of Baal's toys. We'll begin again. Where is the rest of your team? Like, they're in a play, the NID sticking grimly to their script and ignoring any ad-libs. On vacation, the stick again. Summer camp with the Asgard. 
You should see Thor in his swimming trunks. Footsteps in the corridor. There's only one person who hasn't joined the party yet. I don't. Jones hears the noise and turns to unlock the door. Soulpatch looks round, lowering the shock stick. Morons. He braces his feet on the floor and lets his cuffed hands drop casually to the edge of the table. Ready? Adrian Conrad, or the Gould, wearing his body. The eyes of a petulant little boy in the sagging, prematurely aged face. He doesn't expect the boiling surge of hatred from the snake. For this Gould, of all Gould, for everything they are. A jolt in his chest, as if someone stabbed a needle into his heart, enough adrenaline flooding his system to kill an ox, to stop or start a human heart, and he tries not to jerk visibly. Ready? Ready? Heels of his hands against the edge of the table, thumbs hooking underneath. One door. Only one chance at this. Not about to try anything? Just relax. Take your eyes off me for a millisecond. Damn you! The Gould comes closer, saying, Colonel O'Neill. And he never finds out if it would actually have gone for the, So we meet again! Because his fingers begin to prickle, and he knows the Gould must be feeling the same thing. Watches its eyes widen. Now! The metal table flips over as easily as if it's made of balsa wood. It goes one way, crashing into the goons, and he goes the other, his shoulder slamming into Joan's smallest, weakest, before she can raise the Beretta. Something cracks as she hits the wall, but he doesn't wonder what, because Conrad's ducked away from the table, reflex taking him out of the way, and the narrow doorway's clear, and he lunges for it. Out! He sprints down the corridor, and hears the crack of shots behind him. They're quick on the uptake, he'll give them that, but if he can get to the corner, he's covered. It hits like a hammer blow to the small of his back, and he stumbles, and nearly falls before the snake catches him, and hurls them onwards, down the corridor, swinging round the corner and on. The ship's a maze, and he has no clue where he's running except away. For all he knows, he's headed straight for a dead end, another trap. But then, the snake reaches into his memories and grabs paper, a stack of papers toppling across his desk, a document he'd glanced at and scrawled a signature on and forgotten, the X-303 blueprints. National Geographic for the snake set, oh, he was right all along. He'd swear he'd forgotten, barely glimpsed it, but it comes up crisp and clear as a heads-up display. The snake sends them ducking into another corridor, then doubles back, heading towards the pursuer's shit. No! Counting numbers on the doors, matching the number plate he saw and the blueprints in his mind, yes! Slamming through the door, into something like a utility closet, bare metal shelves and a mop and bucket in the corner, but no time to look because he's scrambling up shelves against the wall, foot, knee, one elbow, and a soft snarl of fury at the inconvenience of cuffed hands. But they're up, momentum beats gravity, pressed against the slant of the ceiling, find the panel in the right place. There, 
One hard kick knocks it inwards into a dark, empty space, and he rolls, twists himself in, snagging the panel and pulling it into place behind him. A breath's pause. Low ceiling, a couple of feet above his head. A maintenance duck. Why does it always have to be ducks? On the move again, crawling on elbows and knees. Sharp stab of pain in his back, but then it's gone. Until he almost pitches head first down the sheer drop. An awkward turn in the tight space, trying to get his feet on the ladder. Can't go up with cuffed hands, so he goes down. Still needs another hand. Crap. Tries to balance on an elbow, but it slips, and he plummets down, banging against the rungs with a noise like someone running a stick along metal railings before he can catch himself, can pull himself sideways into another duck, crawl along, slowing, breathing, beginning to rasp, and stop. Cold and dark. Faint glow of light from the emergency lights in the shaft. Nothing more. Pupils dilated to maximum, blown like a doctor's dripped atropine into them. But even that doesn't get him much usable vision in the dimness. He turns in the small space, one of them does, and draws his knees up, trying to curl round the injury bullet in the back, but he can't find an exit wound. No pain, only an absence of sensation. The hot, edged space where pain should be. Where the hell are they? Diagrams flip into his mind. The narrow space between the ship's inner and outer hull. Maintenance access only not intended to be habitable. Sparse emergency lighting. Only the heat and atmosphere that leaks from the rest of the ship. They're feeding off the crumbs, like rats in the wall. One step away from breathing vacuum again. He can feel wetness spreading across his back, Warm at first, but chilling fast against his skin. Fuck, he hopes his jacket's soaked up most of it, and there isn't a blood trail leading all the way here. He's pretty sure the NID won't come into the access shafts after him, though. Too high a risk of having to fight one-on-one in the cramped space, and now they know what they're dealing with. Even injured, he could still take one of them with him. The smart option would be to seal off each level of the ship and then vent them to space, one by one. Kill him wherever he is. But even if the NID think of that, it'll take them some time to set it in motion. Or they could use poison gas if they have any. Such an optimist, Skippy. But the snake's silent, focusing on something else. It might be getting colder in here. Or he's getting colder. 
heavy, as if the gravity's slowly being turned up, starting to pin him under his own weight, and he's getting a nasty feeling about what the snake's not telling him. How badly hurt are they, anyway? He gets a flash of it, then. Fuckers shot him with a hollow point. Missed his spine, but ripped through a kidney, exploding inside him. And they tore themselves up worse to keep on running. The bleeding on the outsides, a fraction of the bleeding on the inside. And the snake's trying to control it, trying to slow the bleeding. But he's panicking. He can feel it. Heart race increasing as their blood pressure drops, shock settling in. There's the sarcophagus. He could try to get to it, but no, not that, never that. The same certainty that drove them cold turkey, even when he was out of his fucking mind. Out of their fucking minds. Besides... It's not like he could afford to make himself vulnerable for however long it'll take. Might as well hand himself over to them and be done with it. Still not feeling any pain, but he's starting to get that cotton wool feeling. Like he could just lie here and go to sleep, soft and warm and cozy as a snowdrift. Like being on morphine. Oh, hell... The stupid son of a bitch must have shot them full of every endorphin possible to keep them going. Big fucking help, because what he really needs right now is to be high as a kite. He tries to fight off the drifting sensation, slams a hand against the metal floor to feel an instant's pain, feels something. Stay awake. He can't afford not to be clear-headed. A rush of irritation at being distracted from his work. Then, that familiar voice out of his own mouth, flat and distorted and loud. Sleep. I will watch. Does the snake even know how to whisper? He was instructed to use the voice. Yeah, but not... He shakes his head and tries to think. Okay, the snake's got a point. It surprises him to find himself thinking it, but still. Snake brain will hang on to consciousness. Stay alert longer. Conserve energy. Get out of the way and let him work. And he trusts the snake to keep watch. Well, not trust trust. Not trust as in likes, but it's not like the snake can sell him out after all. He could be pissed about the memory thing, though. Even if it did save their collective ass. Even if he might have made the same call himself. No time to ask permission. But he reserves the right to be pissed about it. Later. The end of chapter 8.
I love this. My favorite. Right up until the next chapter, which is also my favorite.